during my second year of Bible college, my dad was transferred from where I grew up in Finley, Ohio, to London, England. And uh, we were, my family was there for about seven years. And so my junior and senior year in college, I'd go home during the holidays over summer and Christmas uh, to Great Britain, and I'd be there for months. And I remember fondly my first summer there, and uh, I didn't have a job, wasn't able to have a job. And uh, so I, I was able to do a lot of sightseeing and see London and a lot of England, and we went to Scotland and uh, France and all kinds of places in Europe, and able to see a lot of amazing historical things. But as I spent more time in London, I recognized because they drove on the other side of the road. I don't know if you've ever been there or been in a country like that, but it is way more scary than you can think. Um, so I thought I found out the best way of getting around, the best mode of transportation was the tube. That was their little affectionate name for the London's underground subway. And uh, I found it was fairly inexpensive, it was pretty convenient, and it wasn't too hard to navigate, especially if you had what they called a tube map that showed you where everything went. And uh, we did that. And, but one of the things that was unique, in fact, I've even read articles on it because it's unique to England and their subway, is that there is constantly in almost every train station, there's almost constantly this announcement going on, and it says, mind the gap. And they say it all the time. And in fact, it's so important to them that they also wrote it on the ground. All the train, when you pull up to the train station, the train pulls in. It's about every five feet along that mind the gap. You have to mind, it's because I guess what a long time ago when they started this thing that the, the uh, trains went in a certain way, but now over time uh, the, tra- the, ra- the train tracks were curved. And so when you come into the track station, there's a gap, probably about. 18 inches between the train itself and you stepping off. And so they're always warning you, if you're not aware of it, if you're a first-timer in London, they'll tell you repeatedly over and over again, mind the gap, because they know if you don't, it could be very, very dangerous. In fact, I've read stories of people who didn't and lost their lives. And, and so it, it was important, mind the gap. Peter is doing that in our text. He is repeatedly warning and talking to the Christians that he is ministering to through his letter to mind the gap, but not the gap on a subway platform, but the gap that for some of them was in their faith. What do you mean gap in their faith, Pastor Walker? Well, Peter is writing to help people put something together. And maybe this is something that you need to learn to put together. Um, And that is namely suffering and glory. And see, they were familiar with all the things that God had done with them, for them and what Jesus had done with them, for them, but they still were going through a lot of trials, a lot of problems, and life at times, like ours, was messy. And what they needed to know, what Peter wanted to communicate to them and to us this morning is this, God is sovereign over everything in your salvation. He's sovereign over how you got saved and he'll be sovereign over the conclusion of your salvation when it's made sight and you get in Jesus's presence. And he wants you to know this. He's also sovereign over the middle of your salvation. Theologically, we might say it this way. God is in control of your justification, your glorification, and in the middle, your sanctification. See, 
Why, why, Pastor? Why is that so important for us to get? Because here's why. Because a lot of God's people have a gap in their faith. See, we don't mind talking about the beginning of how you came to know Christ and you give testimony about how God discovered and you found him and you put your faith in him. And we love talking about the end of our faith. We love talking about even if it's meaning death, we we get to go to heaven, we'll be eternally with God. Those are awesome things. But what about the middle part? See, we like the beginning and we like the end, but there's sometimes there's a gap in our faith in the middle of it. And see, our, our text is even structured with that in mind. In chapter 4, I mean, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, here's what's about your salvation. He says, you've been born again, and you have a living hope, and you have an inheritance where? In heaven. See, the, the chapter, the, the paragraph ends in verse 12, and it says, you received the gospel that was preached to you by the Holy Spirit of God, ultimately, who is from heaven. And, and from that angle, both our texts, both the beginning and the end, end with thoughts about your salvation and how it has its origins, its power, and its conclusion in heaven. But it's the middle part, see. It's the part in the middle. In fact, salvation is used in verse 5, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he says, but what do you do while you're trying to actually live it out here on earth? So we love talking about the heavenly aspects. We love talking about the eternal aspects. But sometimes the middle gets a little messy And we have a hard time, maybe that's you this morning, with what you're going through as you're facing. We have a hard time connecting the heavenly part with the earthly part. We can't really fit together in our minds the glory that we'll have, but the grief that we have now. See, we have a hard time in our mind making it work together and gel together that the things that are secure in heaven, and we're going through insecurity while we're here on earth. It's all... I call it the salvation sandwich. It's hard for us to get a bite of everything, if I could put it that way. So let me start off by asking, is there a gap in your faith this morning? I know the triumph that you have in Jesus, but the triumph and the trials, how does that work together? How does the past and how does the the future of my salvation, how does that have bearing on what I'm going through right now? And I would tell you this, if you're going to, Have a fireproof faith that handles any trial, any difficulty, any problem that you face. You must have a complete salvation. You must have the middle anchored by the beginning and the end and vice versa. So let me say it again. The Lord is sovereign over your salvation. The beginning of it, the ending of it, and everything that is in between. That's what a fireproof faith does. It connects all three of those things. And that connection closes the gap that sometimes happens in the middle of our faith. So we're going to do two things in the few minutes we have. We're going to look at the beginning and the ending of our faith and how that impacts, number two, the middle of our faith. So let's unpack them one at a time. Verses one, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is one of the longest sentences in the Bible. It is actually one sentence. All those verses, we would never get away with that today with our grammar rules, but the apostles could. 175 words, ongoing. Talk about run-on sentence. This is one of the longest ones in the New Testament. And in it, he uses 
six times in this chapter, four of those six times, the other two being, being verse 21, four of times he uses the word faith, pistis in the Greek, or believing, it's the same word. He uses it, and he talks about it in three different tenses. Chapter 1, verse 5, look at your Bible. He says, our faith, in chapter 1, verse 5. And he's talking about it in the context of how our faith began. And then let me jump down in verse 9. He talks about the outcome of your faith. The word means complete, finished. So he talks about faith and how it began in your life. And in verse 9, he talks about how faith ends and how it comes to a fulfillment in your life. And in between, he uses it in verse 7, that middle part. That hard part that we try to connect and often struggle with. See, he wants to give us a whole package, a whole picture of a faith that doesn't have any gaps. It's not a faith that's just strongly on the beginning and strong on the end, but a faith that he calls, in verse 7, a genuine one. One that is real, one that is transparent, one that is authentic. Not a phony one, not just a religious one, but a genuine one. He says a genuine faith has all three aspects. So God is sovereign, and he wants us to start by taking a look back to how it started. Blessed be God, verse 3, and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, according to his great mercy. There are three beatitudes in the book of 1 Peter, this just being one of them. And he starts out by worshiping. And he wants to say, blessed be God, because when he does that, He is using that to draw all of us in and say, here's what we have in common. Listen, all of our suffering, all of our trials, all of our testing is always rooted in our identity. And someone I read this week said this, you'll never really know who you are until you suffer. And so here's what he wants you to say. We are the people, verse 1 and 2. We are exiles. We are God's chosen people, but we're different. We're pilgrims. We're on a journey. This isn't our home. And because of that, we have to understand the middle. And you do that by looking backwards first. Look back at your faith and how God was sovereign in it. And look at the text. See, here's what he says. How did you get this identity how did, you come a, how did you become a Christian in faith? And every single person in this room, if you gave your testimony about how you came to know Christ, if you truly know him, we could tell different stories and different circumstances, but here's the one thing that we all know. He did it. He was sovereign in it. It was God alone who saved me. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. I w- it wasn't because I was Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran. It wasn't because I was baptized or catechized or any other eyes. It's because of him and his sovereign grace. And, and, and Peter wants you to know that. Some people have called this just the, the, whole, the five links, the golden links together of salvation. He says, it's his great mercy. His great mercy, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, it's he caused us to be born again. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He gave us an inheritance. He guards it. He protects it. He keeps us. You see the emphasis? It's God. See, you and I could never have saved ourselves. We would never have had this identity if it weren't for God. Every single person in this room who knows Christ has a very same spiritual biography, and that is it. God saved us. Every single one of us. 
But it's more than that. Can you hear me? It's more than that. Do you realize what that means? How bad off were we in our sin? Well, we needed this. We needed not just mercy. We needed great mercy. And the word in the, in, is the same word used down in precious, precious faith, precious. It means it was abundant. It was a lot. It was valuable. It was a faith that was so much because that's what it took. And, and, and we were spiritually dead, so it was, his mercy had to act in such an radical way, a severe way. How did it act for you and I when we got saved? Well, Jesus Christ had to die and rise again from the dead. See, we needed new life. Sometimes I think we think that we got saved because we had a few problems, some things we needed to work on. Maybe we were ignorant of a few things. Oh, can I tell you? Far more than that. We were so bad off in our sins, not because we're as bad as others, but we were just as bad as anyone who has ever sinned. It took great mercy. It took an extreme spiritual makeover in your life to become a Christian. God not giving you what you do deserve, his mercy. And we had to be born again. A whole new life had to be given to us. Okay, Pastor Walker, I get it, but how does that help me? Because we are born again to a living hope. A living hope. I will tell you this this morning, no matter what fiery furnace you're facing, you cannot face it without a living hope. A living hope from a living Savior who was sovereign and powerful enough to be able to bring you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. See, how do you get through another chemo treatment? When the doctor tells you that he thinks you're getting better and all of a sudden you relapse, how do you get through that? You have to get through that, and the only way is through a living hope because that you know that you already have healing and health and a new life in Christ. How do you face the furnace of your loved ones passing away? Your wife, your spouse, your children, a living hope because you know this is not where it ends How do you endure the pain of a broken relationship? But how about this? How about one broken relationship after another? You know how you do it? A living hope. A living hope, something greater, something better, something that nobody can touch, something that can't be taken away from you, a hope that will get you through the darkest night. That is what Eli Weissel was looking for. Eli Weissel was in Auschwitz prison camp. During World War II, he was a Jew. After he survived the camp, he wrote a book called Night, because that's the best way he could use to describe the trials that he went through. He said the worst thing after the first year of being in Auschwitz was that he started to lose hope because he was no longer allowed to live or be near his father. And he hardly saw his dad, but when he did, he was coming weaker and weaker. And they'd go back to where they lived in sort of like a barracks. And everyone was despairing and depressed. Why? Because they didn't know what was happening to their family members. They didn't know if they were alive or dead. And he says they felt alone. Not to mention, and I won't go into detail, the atrocities that they saw from people being literally murdered and children being hung and left out for people to see for hours. He said, I lost hope. I never thought I would get out of this prison camp. 
And here's what he says, but the main reason I lost hope was I didn't have a reason to keep going after my father died. You see, for Eli Weissel, he lost hope. You know why? Because he didn't have anything in the past and he didn't have anything in the future to anchor him. All he had was now. You cannot get through a fiery furnace without a living hope. When his, father's, his father died, his hope died. But if your hope is in Jesus, the one who has the power to sovereignly and greatly and mercifully save you from the worst possible hopelessness, you can have a hope. In fact, he calls it in verse 4, if you look there, an inheritance But what kind of inheritance? It's one that's imperishable. You may perish, it will not. It lasts longer than death. It is undefiled. It can't be corrupted. It won't break down over time. It's unfading. It doesn't matter how long it is. It'll still be good. It'll last forever. See, the Lord himself has given you this inheritance. And it's in heaven. Isn't it awesome in the text? That the Bible says that God keeps your inheritance for you and you for your inheritance. Both ends of it. You couldn't be more secure. And that living hope is the anchor that Eli Weissel did not have. But as Christians, we do have. So no matter what you're facing today, here's what you need to know. In Jesus Christ, your life is unshakable. It is secure and sure in a way that no other life can be. See, but that's the beginning of your faith. And Jesus says, look back. Peter says, look back. Look what God has done for you. Look when you were born again, when you were saved, and what God gave you and the hope that started back then. But he says, look at the end now. Look forward. He says, look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome, the end, the finality of your faith. See, what God starts, Peter wants you to know, he will finish. He will. He will see you through your darkest days because the whole package, the whole salvation, beginning to end and in the middle, God is sovereign. He's got it all under control. Paul said it this way, he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We would say today, you got to be able to see the finish line. You've got to be able to see that you're going to make it to the end. Paul needed that. The greatest Christian in New Testament times, he needed that. He writes his last letter from a prison cell in 2 Timothy 4. And he writes these words. And they're important to me because they're the words my dad chose to put on his tombstone. Paul said this at the very end of his life with a finish line in view. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, finished the course, and I've kept the faith. You see what he did? He closed the gap in his faith. He says, I've gone through all of these things, and I've come this far. And I'm close to the finish line. And he says, and the Lord has delivered me and he will deliver me. 
See, here's what Paul knew. Here's what closed the gap in his faith. Here's where, how he handled the middle of imprisonment and torture and all the things that were done. You know how he did? He knew this. God was sovereign when he saved me, and he'll be sovereign when I get to heaven, and he'll be sovereign on everything in between. He closed the gap because he had a hope. Not a hope back there, but a hope forward up there. If you had two guys... And they were both said this, you're going to have a job and you're going to work 365 days a year and you're going to work 12 hours a day and you have to work seven days a week. You get no vacations, you get no time off. This is your job for an entire year. And one of the guys were told him that at the end of the year, we're going to give you $15,000. He's going to go to work every day, what? Griping? You're already thinking in your heart what you'd say. Grumbling? complaining. He's probably not going to put the best effort out. He's going to do as little as he can. At the end of the year, after all that, you're going to give me 15000 But the other guy, the first guy doesn't know, but the other guy says, same job, same work, menial task, over and over again, hour after hour, every day, no breaks, no weekends, no vacations for an entire year, but we're going to give you $15 million at the end of the year. Oh, what happens? He comes to work, long hours, stupid job, hot diggity. <laughs> Love this job. Man, the perks are great here. He comes to work. Well, how is he completely different? The job is the same. The hours are the same. There's no time off. What's different? Oh, there's a hope. There's a hope, isn't there? That at the end of it, when you're finished, that the outcome will change everything. Before. See, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, God started the beginning of your faith, and He's going to see you to the end of your faith. And He says, Let those two pressures on either end close the gap. You remember, I don't know, I know they do it all the time. Now, when I was a kid, not everybody got braces. I think that you could have one little tooth problem, and you have everybody gets braces, thousands of dollars. Some of my friends, when I was in high school, they got braces. And this one girl, she had a really big gap in her teeth along the front. And she, she said, so they spent thousands. This is way back in the day when braces were just coming out. But the, what the point of the braces was is what? The braces on your teeth, what? It pushed your teeth closer together. And so you pushed the pressure, made there was no gap. And after, I don't know, two years or something of having braces on, Right? The gap was gone. See, that's what this text is trying to do for you. When you're going through the trials, see, God says, here's your salvation on this end, and here's your salvation finished on this end, and here's what God says. I want you to push it. It'll push you together if you see what you have. If you see the hope that you have, it'll push it together. It's like, have you ever heard of gap insurance for your car? See, if your car is lost, or not lost, stolen, totaled, and you go to turn it in the insurance, if you don't haven't paid it off, it'll pay the gap between. Here's what Peter says. See, if your life is totaled by the trials and the difficulties that you're facing, here's what God says. See, you've got in Christ Jesus, you've got a kind of gap insurance. See, that when you get to heaven and you think, well, I've missed out on some things and I'm not sure it was worth it, he says, listen, I'm going to cover the gap. So when you get across the finish line, you'll know this. It was far worth, far more than any difficulty, any problem that you ever faced in this life. So here's what Peter says to his readers and to you this morning. Mind the gap. 
The gap in your life because you can get so distracted, so disappointed, so much in despair about now that you forget about what's behind you and what's in front of you as an anchor to your soul. Well, what would it look like, Pastor Walker? If that's the beginning and the end of our faith, what would the middle look like? Well, the middle will look like far different, perhaps, than some of you are living it out right now. In fact, verses 6 through 8 might be so radical that you don't even think it's possible based on the experience of how you've handled the middle and are handling the middle. But he says, if you look that, in verse number 6, he says this, In this you rejoice. In fact, it brackets our text, 6 and 8. He says, in this you rejoice, and he says, you rejoice again with joy inexpressible and full of glory at the end. He wants you to know that in the middle of your sufferings and trials, and you name them, you name your fiery furnaces, external ones, internal ones, whatever they are, things that everybody knows, troubles that you face that nobody knows, that you keep bottled up inside on your own. Here's what he's saying. You can have joy Because of your salvation on this end and on that end, you can have joy in the middle. Joy that is in Jesus. Because suffering leads to glory. If you put those together, if you understand that, he says, the middle can be so awesome. In this you rejoice, verse 6. Watch. How can you find joy? When things go wrong, the bottom of your life drops out. And you want to just call it quits. How do you find joy, Pastor Walker? Because it gives you this. When you have the beginning and the end, and it is the anchor of your soul, your middle will see things differently. Two things, new values and a new vision. Here's what it says. Though for a little while. You remember last week's text? It says... That though our light and momentary affliction, light and momentary, how in the world could I see this relational breakup, my child's rebellion, my financial straits, how can that be seen as light and momentary? Here's what he says in the text. For a little while, a little while, how is that When compared to eternity, it is a little while. But if you don't have that framework, you don't see the beginning and the end and the eternity and all that God has You'll see this as forever, and that chronic will never cease. But when you put it in the framework that Peter gives, he says, for a little while, watch, if necessary. What do you mean? Peter says, because God controls that too. He doesn't just control the mercy and the born again and the raising you from the dead. He doesn't just getting you through and and transforming you. He doesn't just control the beginning and the end of your salvation. He controls the middle He decides how long. He decides if it's necessary. In fact, he says right now, and he uses the word now twice, verses 6 and 8, he says this, because right now you may be going through all kinds of various kinds of trials. Do you see that? How long it lasts, if it's even necessary for you. And he says, and what kinds, what kinds of trouble you're in. God cares about you so deeply if you're his child that he knows exactly how long it'll take that you need to be in the furnace. He knows how long it should be there. He knows what kind of heat you need. 
He knows what kind of difficulties that you need. You know why? Because he's working on your faith. That's the text. That the genuine of your faith, though it be tested by fire. The idea is a forge. I have a ring on my finger. It has two W's on it. It's gold, and it stands for William Walker because that's my name, my sons, all of their names, my dad, my grandfather, blah, 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 George Foreman problem. Right? This is a nice ring, and it looks nice. It is 10 karat gold, probably not worth a whole lot. This one, on the other hand, over here, this is my wedding ring, more precious than this, 14 karat gold, somewhat worth more than this, not 18 karat though, way more valuable, 24 karat, the best. You know how you get the differences? Because you put them under fire, and when you put them under extreme heat, all the mixed alloys and other metals that are in there, they come to the surface, and then they do what the Bible says in the Old Testament, that try me, and I will take away the dross, and I will become a vessel for the refiner, Proverbs 25.4. All the dross, all the other metals that are not gold, they come to the surface, and they take it off, and what you come out with at the end is pure gold. Job was tried and had testings, trials more than any of us will ever experience. As he looks back on what God had done in his life and all of his losses, here's what he says in Job 23.10. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, Job closed the gap in the middle. Paul closed the gap in the middle because he was able to see the trials as a continuation of his faith. Not to make his faith weaker, but stronger more pure. See, the problem is, is that you and I too often, we're, we settle for a 10-carat faith. That's all we're concerned about. We're not really, we don't want to be 24-carat for God too often. So we complain and we gripe and we groan about the, but we don't see what God is doing because we forgot the beginning and the end. We're not holding on to the process, excuse me, the process. But Paul says this, Peter says this, that's what I'm doing in your life. The old hymn says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. How do you handle now? How do you get the perspective that it's only for a little while? How do you see God's sovereignty about what kind of trials and if it's necessary? Only if you are embracing the beginning and the ending of your faith will you know how to respond to the middle of your faith. A little while will be combated by a long while, eternity. Having the things that you see will be offset by the things that you don't see. And that's why verse 8 says, having not seen him, you love him. See, it gives us, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, it gives you the ability to look at things, temporal versus eternal, invisible versus visible. We have the ability to compare those things. Why? Because we understand the whole of our salvation. 
and the kind of Savior who gave it to us. And can I close with this this morning? We don't have a Savior who's not just sovereign over our suffering, but was submitted to suffering. God is not a God who's a distant deity, transcendent, way out in the universe somewhere, who is distant and can be untouched and unfelt our sufferings and difficulties. But it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus, who suffered, suffered for our sins. He knows exactly what you're going through. And can I tell you, he came forth 24 carats. And he says, I'm going to get you through it. I'm going to make it so that your trials are going to make you, prepare you for glory. Because child of God, they go together. And while you're journeying, keep together, mind the gap, close the gap, so that you can be gold for his glory. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, Maybe you're here this morning and you've got gaps. You've got gaps in your faith. I'm so grateful I'm saved, Pastor Walker. I'm so grateful I'm going to heaven. I love the beginning and the end, but I'll have to be honest the middle is a mess. The middle is a mess because I don't see what God is doing. The new values of what is precious, the new vision that I can see him who I don't see with my eyes, but I still love him and love him enough to have a strong faith, love him enough to follow him. See, Pastor Walker, I messed up in the middle. I need the salvation. I need the whole thing in my mind and heart. I need that framework. I need to think through those things and work through those things and respond to the trials in my life through the completed salvation that I have in Jesus. I'm really struggling, Pastor, the various trials. I'm in the furnace. I don't like it. The temperature's too hot, or so I think. Will you see this morning that God is sovereign over that too? Will you let him put the pressure on you of what he's done and what he has already done and what he's going to do? Can you let that work in your life to bring you through the middle the difficulties, the trials? Will you let him take the dross out of your life this morning, the impurities that still remain, and refine your Christian life to be 24 karat gold for him? If there's anyone here this morning as a child of God, you say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand, pray for me. I'm in a mess in the middle, and I need that perspective. I need to let God refine my gold so that I can be more like him. Here's my hand, pray for me. Thank you. Thank you. On my left and the center, thank you. Balcony. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. I see that hand as well. I thank your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Parents, children, teenagers, husbands, wives together. Listen, I need to see what God's doing in the middle and let it change my life. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to see the entirety of our salvation. And may it help us as we have faith to go through the furnace that when you have tested us, we will come forth as gold 
because we've connected suffering and glory because it is the exact pattern and path of our Savior. May we follow in his steps, as Peter goes on to say. And I pray for everyone in this room today who raised their hand, who are suffering and going through difficulties and testing and trials. God, may they see that you're only refining their faith and that the difficulties and suffering are preparing them for a glory that is beyond imagination. May we live out our hope because of Jesus and in Jesus and for Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.